It's good to be in church this morning. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm Sam Mack, if we haven't met. Um, I have the privilege of running the young adults here. And uh, I've got the privilege of uh, speaking today, actually, over the, the next two Sundays. I'm bringing a little mini-series. Um, so, first time I've ever done a series. It's been an interesting process. I've uh, rewritten this sermon I'm bringing this morning about four or five times. Um, but really feel that what um, God has uh, this morning is a revelation that he's revealed to me and that, um, that he's going to share with you. So I'm just going to pray and then we'll get stuck in. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray that you use me as, uh, as your mouthpiece this morning, Lord. I pray that the things that I bring this morning are of you, Lord, uh, that I just leave everything of uh, my flesh behind, God, but uh, you guide me through your spirit, Lord. And I pray that you open everyone's ears here, Father God, to hear what you want to say to them this morning, that you would bring fresh revelation, Lord, and that you would just, uh, Lord, just let us uh, share together as a family this morning in church. In Jesus' name. Amen. The year was 1939, and in Orleans, France, there was a group of boys um, that decided that they'll get up to a little bit of mischief, right? And if you're a group, if you're a boy, uh, this is probably you know something you're familiar with. So they're up to a bit of mischief, right? There's a group of them, and they decide they want to play a trick on the local priest, okay? And so um, so they decide that they want to maybe we should go and see the local priest rattle off a list of false sins, like in insane, just an incredible list, and to see what his response is. That would be really funny. Now, um, I've been a pastor, do a little bit of pastoral care. Um, I don't find this funny um, because I could put myself in the priest's uh, feet and be like, wow, this, this could be an awful time. But this group of boys, this guy called Aaron put up his hand and he said, I'll be the one to go in and, and talk, to the, uh, talk to the priest. I'll, I'll rattle off the sins. He was a young Jewish boy. So Aaron in France goes in to see, um, goes into, I was about to say the Pope, but the priest, okay, in a Catholic church, Jewish boy goes in and he's like, forgive me, Father, I've sinned because I, and he starts rattling off this like insane list of sins. Okay, now the priest being wise and holy uh, immediately knew what he was up to. Without showing any sign of annoyance, the confessor gave him a simple penance to go to the altar kneel before the large image of Jesus crucified and say three times, Jesus, I know you died for me, but I don't give a damn. So this boy Aaron goes to the altar with the image of the crucified God, Jesus on the cross. He kneels and he says, Jesus, I know you died for me, but I don't give a damn. Jesus, I know you died for me, but I don't give a damn. Jesus, I know you died for me. And he couldn't say it a third time. The following year, August 1940, Aaron was baptized and took the name Jean-Marie, and that boy became and went on to become the Archbishop of France from 1981 to 2005 when he retired. What is it about the death of Jesus on the cross that can have such a profound impact on people? Why is it when we're asked why we are Christians, we usually respond with, because Jesus died for me? 
how does a Jewish boy go from confessing something he doesn't really believe, that Jesus died for him, let alone understand, to be transformed by what he was saying and therefore dedicating his vocation, his life to Jesus? Em and I were having, about a month ago, um, dinner with a couple, um, a couple uh, friends of Emma's, uh, Ryan and Stacey, and, and, uh, and we're all having a great time. And then Emma and Stacey went off to chat about weddings because they just got married and, and we're getting married soon and, and, and that's all people like to talk about. But I, I was, being, being a pastor, me and Ryan, you know, a bit on a, on, a, on a higher spiritual level, we started to discuss the things of God, okay, and, uh, and about church. And then it descended into, um, if you've ever been involved in a midweek, late-night conversation with me about church, it's probably going to go a bit theological. So we started, we started discussing this, and I felt compelled to ask him the question, not because I, um, I, I felt that he needed to be challenged on the point, but just to, just to make a point, asking the question, why are you a Christian? And, and Ryan was kind of like, huh, like, and, and as we, as we discuss this question together, we realize it's not really an easy question to answer, not, a, not at least to articulate, okay, especially when you're put on the spot. And even more so if someone that's never encountered Christianity, that's never been in church, asks you that question, because it's easy to put some Christianese or some Christian lingo on your answer. But for someone that says, you know, why you're a Christian, it is hard to answer. I equate it to, um, to if you've ever been in a relationship and you're falling in love with someone and that person says, why do you love me? Now, it's a feeling, okay, it's a belief. You, you do love them, but it is a little bit hard to articulate, especially the first time. Would you agree? So you have to think about it. You have to, you have to think about, hang on, why do I love this person? Why, what, I need to articulate this feeling. And I think it is, it's really hard to explain, but it is really important to explain. A, it's important for yourself because it's like, hang on, this, these are the reasons I do love this person. It's reaffirming in you. But it's also important to the person that's asking. They need to be affirmed by, like, um, why do you love me? Oh, because I do. As they need to hear the reasons behind it. And I believe that, um, like, they feel validated by, by you articulating this. And I feel that... Um, that this is the same with Christianity. Yes, our conversion in Christ, when we've come to Christ and we've been converted and we call ourselves Christians, we've been baptized, and, and it is just something that we know is true. It's a belief that we know is true. You know that you know that you know. But how do you actually articulate this? Um, so we might come to a point in, in our lives where we actually ask this question of ourselves. Why am I a Christian? And it is very important that we have an answer at that time because if we don't and if we're in a time where the feeling isn't there and the presence of God doesn't feel close and we can't answer this question, speak truth to it, then we may begin to doubt and that's a path that you don't want to go down as a Christian. Romans 10 verse 10 says, For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. But do we know what to confess? Not only is it important to articulate why we are Christians, but it is important for us to tell others why we are Christians. This is where the answer, because Jesus died for me, falls short. Because to a Christian, that might seem like a great answer, but to the one that doesn't know Jesus, it's complete folly, right? Because Jesus died for you? What? And if we're honest, if we're really honest, I believe that sometimes that it's even folly to us. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22 to 23, 
For Jews demand, sorry, verse 20, yeah, 22 to 23. For Jews demand signs and Greeks uh, seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. It's confusing. They return to Aaron, the young Jewish boy. The impact of Jesus' death that had on his life, I still believe that the, that's where the, the key lies to this answer, is in the death of Christ. However, we need to learn the reasons behind Jesus' death. We need to go deeper than a throwaway line. We need to ask questions like, why did Jesus have to die? And why did he have to die so brutally and suffering on the cross? And most important, what does Jesus' death mean to me, to you specifically, to you, to us as individuals. Because before we can have a revelation of what Christ's death on the cross means for everyone, we must have a revelation of what it means to us. Martin Luther, not Martin Luther King, but Martin Luther, uh, the monk said, so it is not enough and no use for anyone to know God in his glory and majesty if at the same time he does not know him in the lowliness and shame of his cross. Thus true theology and true knowledge of God lie in the cru Christ the crucified one. So over the next few weeks, I want to unpack Christ on the cross. Okay, I want to unpack this idea, and this is the, the name of my sermon this morning. So the name of my series is Why Did Christ... Uh, sorry, why are you Christians? And, and part one, we're going to look at the cross and what it means to us. And then next week, we're going to really look at how that applies, how that applies to the church, how that applies to the church corporately, how that applies to people that don't know Christ. So first, we've got to get a revelation of what the cross means to us. And then next week, we're going to look into how do we actually apply that? Why is that important? If it's important to us, is it important to others? And why so? So this morning, I'm going to start out with um, the path to the cross. How did Jesus get to the cross? Crucifixion, right, was one of the most ugly forms of execution, if not the most ugliest form of execution that's ever been practiced. And it was something that the Roman government practiced, and it was specifically reserved for rebels of the Roman government, for the individuals. So Rome was occupying Israel. We know that, that Rome was in Israel as a force. They had taken over Israel, overthrown the government, the kingship there, and they're occupying an oppressive force in their land. And what they used crucifixion for was for people rising up against that. Okay, for the people rebelling against the oppressive government. This is something that we see, like, at least once a night on the news, right? Is that there is, there is a tyranny in charge, a government in charge that is oppressing the people and there are people rising up and saying that we're not going to take this any longer and they're rising against it and, and we see awful things happening. We see it in Syria, we see it like everywhere and the government starts to attack its people and use force against them. This was the way that the Roman government used force against the people that were uprising against it. For the people that threatened the, um, their power, they used crucifixion. Why? Because it was brutally painful. It was torturous. That it was designed to keep you as alive as long as you can in pain before you died. Uh, they didn't just behead. It was just like, let's, just, let's not get it over and done with. Let's drag it out. Okay, but it was also humiliating, right? Because there's someone strung up on a cross naked. As Jared said, it's not the beautiful loincloth picture. It's naked. It's shameful. It is, des it is designed as a sign. So then when people walk across, and I was uh, watching, um, 
watching a documentary earlier this year on the rise of ISIS and and the methods that they use and, and it is public executions to instill fear into the people to say, this is what happens when you rebel. Okay, so this is the cross. Here we go. So the, Jew, the Jews expected, like we, we heard from Jared when he did his series, that they, uh, the Jews expected the Messiah to take, to take back Israel, to rip it off the Roman government and to do it by force, okay? So it wasn't blasphemy that was a concern to the Romans, okay? It was, um, it was that they actually felt threatened by the message that Jesus was preaching, the uprising of the poor, the uprising of the suffering, the uprising of the belittled, which the Roman government was doing to the Israel people. So it was threatening to the Roman government, and so what they did, as they did to all threats, was they crucified him. Labeling Jesus as king of the Jews was meant as an insult, a threat, a display of power. It says, this is what happens to those who try to overthrow us. This is your king? Tortured, humiliated, dead? Some king, right? That's what the Roman government was saying by the cross. So we see in the lead up to the cross that Jesus has been mocked. And I'm going to be mostly reading out of Mark this morning, Mark 15, and uh, verses 17 to 20. It says, And they clothed him in a purple cloak, twisting together a crown of thorns. They put it on him, and they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him, kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put um, his own clothes on him and they led him out to be crucified, right? So this was just a, a display of like, can, can you just put yourself there for a second? Okay, and, and if you've ever mocked something, okay, if you've ever mocked something, think of this as mocking someone that is bleeding and is tortured, that has come... And it, Jesus has done so many great things. I read a joke, on, on, I think it was on Twitter, that was like, why did the Romans kill the only guy in Israel that could turn water into wine, right? That was, you know, what, you know th this, this guy was bringing the party, but Jesus was bringing, like, healing, all these, these incredible things that Jesus had done as a man, and now they are, they're mocking him, they're spitting on him, they're bowing down. Like, how mocking is that? They're all king of the Jews, Look at you, king of the Jews, in your purple cloak and your crown of thorns. But they didn't understand that their idea of kingship is very different to, to our God's idea of kingship. I think it's really important to remind ourselves in this situation, because we often like to separate Jesus and God, and we go, Jesus the man right now is just, you know, experiencing. This is God incarnate. This is, this is God who humbled himself and came to earth, to walk on earth with us. Emmanuel, God with us. This is the one prophesied about. This is this, They're doing this to God. They're mocking God going, look at what a great king you are. This is insanity, right? Jesus, son of God, crucified. God crucified, hung naked on the cross. Here on the cross, we witness unparalleled suffering, unparalleled humiliation, unparalleled rejection. In this moment and forever, he is the image of the invisible God. Maltman likes to put it this way. When the crucified Jesus is, the, is called the image of the invisible God, the meaning is that this is God and God is like this. 
God is not lesser than he is in his humiliation. God is not more glorious than he is in his self-surrender. God is not more powerful than he is in his helplessness. God is not more divine than he is in his humanity. This is, like, are you beginning to get a sense of what God's like? Are you beginning to see that if God is Jesus, then this is the picture of God we're given. Hanging on a cross, a God crucified. If you remove the cross from Christianity, it ceases to be Christianity. The two can't be separated. So at this stage, you're probably thinking, but Sam, what about, yeah, Jesus did die on the cross. It was humiliated, but wasn't he resurrected? Right? Isn't that the picture of God we have in Jesus? Rising from the dead, defeating death. Shouldn't that be our focus? Yeah, like absolutely. Jesus definitely did rise from the grave and he did defeat death. But if our response to Good Friday is always, Sunday's coming, then we gloss over the death of Jesus, the suffering death of Jesus, and the lessons that are so essential in it. All right? God came and he died. Okay? There's something in that. All right, there's a, like he would have done it another way if he didn't want us to, to learn something from this. So we're going to move a little bit further into, into Mark now, and, and we're going to talk about the God forsaken cry that Jesus cries out. Verse uh, Mark 15, 33. At noon, darkness fell across the whole land until three o'clock. Then at three o'clock, Jesus called out in a loud voice, and I was going to learn how to pronounce that correctly, but I. I did not get time. Um, but the English translation is, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And down, if we jump down to verse 37, Then Jesus uttered another cry aloud and breathed his last breath, and the curtain of the sanctuary of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. When the Roman officer who stood facing him, and it says in some translations, and heard his cry and saw how he died, he exclaimed, truly, this is the Son of God. So how does witnessing the death of a man lead to the confession of faith? Okay. More so, how does witnessing the rejection and suffering death of Jesus and hearing Jesus cry, why have you abandoned me, God? Why have you forsaken me? How does that lead to a confession in front of him. I'd, like, I'd understand, okay, if he had witnessed Jesus rising and that invoked a, a confession, right? That makes sense, all right? Jesus defeats the grave. Truly, this is the Son of God. This is Jesus in his humiliating death, and the Roman guy says, this is the Son of God. And, and what is even, like, more astonishing is that this isn't a confession made by one of the disciples, because where are the disciples? They're flat. They haven't even hung around. Right, they've run away, okay? This is not even the confession of a Jew, someone that understands that is, that is one, like, uh, understands uh, God the Father, understands that his plan for a Messiah and all this. This isn't even a confession of a Jew. This is the confession of a Roman centurion, okay, a force of the occupying government, right, who is there to, to see people crucified on the cross. He's probably partaken in the mocking, Right? He's probably partaken in the in the in the fake bowing down and like, oh king of the Jews. But now he's led to a confession when he sees Jesus die crying out, My God, why have you forsaken me? He's led to this point where he's gone, Oh my goodness, this is the Son of God. This is God here. 
How do we get to that point? How can we find, how can someone find God in suffering? So Jesus' God-forsaken cry was an echo of Psalm 22, verse 1, which says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then the psalmist goes on to write um, a whole bunch of things, that the woes that faced him, the trials that he had suffered and endured. But it doesn't, it doesn't end in death, but a proclamation of God. If we go down to verse 24, it says, For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He has not hidden his face from him, but has heard his cry when he has cried out to him. So, so Jesus knew this psalm, right? We, we can safely assume that Jesus didn't just read the first verse. Okay, so why is the first verse all he quotes when it goes on to show that God doesn't forsake? I believe it is because Jesus felt forsaken by God truly. It has been my experience that in our greatest struggles, in our greatest trials, in our greatest suffering, we often feel abandoned by God. We cry out with the psalmist, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is in the light that we look at Jesus' cry in absolute suffering, the son forsaken by God in his greatest hour of need. So where is God? When, where, is, where is God when Jesus feels abandoned by him? When he's in his greatest suffering? Where is God? I'm going to invite the band to come. In World War II, there was a Jewish man named Eli Wissel. And he was a prisoner of war. He was a, he was a prisoner of war with the Nazis. And, and I'm going to read an extract from his book, um, Night. Because I, believe, I, I really believe that it perfectly encapsulates what we're talking about here, about this God-forsaken cry and suffering. Uh, and, it, and it answers this question, where is God? This is, this is Ellie writing of his experience. One day as, I, um, as we returned from work, we saw three gallows, three black ravens erected on the Appalachians. The roll call. The SS surrounding us, machine guns aimed at us, the usual ritual. Three prisoners in chains, and among them a little pipal, a sad-eyed angel. The SS seemed more preoccupied, more worried than usual. To hang a child in front of thousands of onlookers was no small matter. The head of the camp read the verdict. All eyes were on the child. He was pale, almost calm, but he was biting his lip as he stood in the shadows of the gallows. This time the Lakugapahu, well, that's not how you pronounce it, I'm sure, which is an elected guard, elected by the prisoners, refused to act as executioner. So three SS took his place. The three condemned prisoners together stepped onto the chairs. In unison, the nooses were placed around their necks. Long live liberty, shouted the two men. The boy was silent. Where is merciful God? Where is he? Someone behind me was crying out. At the signal, the chairs were tipped over. Total silence in the camp. 
on the horizon the sun was setting. Caps off, screamed the leader of the camp. His voice quivered as the rest of us were weeping. Then came the march past the victims. The two men were no longer alive. Their tongues were hanging out, swollen and bluish. But the third rope was still moving. The child, too light, was still breathing. And so he remained for more than half an hour, lingering between life and death, writhing before our eyes. And when we were forced to look at him at close range, he was still alive when I passed him, his tongue still red, his eyes yet not extinguished. Behind me I heard the same man asking, for God's sake, where is God? And from within me I heard a voice answer, where is he? This is where, hanging here from this gallows. When Jesus cried out to God, why have you abandoned me? God does not sit distant above the heavens, immune to the suffering of Jesus. He enters into it. He enters into the suffering of the crucified Christ. Guys, it is not Jesus who hangs on the cross. It is God. This isn't God's wrath poured out on his innocent son. This is God suffering with and in the son. It is an abandonment in his greatest hour of need. It is shared suffering, transformed suffering. Philosophy says that God is impassable, immune to suffering. Christianity retorts, not only can God suffer, but he chose suffering for love. Love cannot be separated from suffering. If love is giving yourself wholeheartedly to another to put them above everything else, it opens up the possibility to suffering, to the possibility of that person rejecting the love. You cannot have love without suffering. God is love, so he can and did suffer. If the people that are um, preparing the table for communion can join me at the front. Revelation declares in, in chapter 21, verse 4, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed. In the meantime, guys, in the here and now, where suffering is so present and so real in our world, Jesus doesn't stand at a distance. He enters into our suffering. He participates in our suffering. He's present in our suffering and promises to suffer with us until that one glorious day where suffering's no more. Jesus doesn't stand aloft in the clouds and say, I'm sorry that you have to suffer until I return. I'm sorry that, that the world is horrible and corrupt and suffering is so real, but I'm just going to watch from a distance. This is Jesus, guys. He is suffering with us. He suffered greater than anyone else. This this is the God we serve. He enters into our suffering. If everyone can stand with me, with me, please. This is why I'm a Christian, guys. Because the glimmering dust that is found in Jesus' death invites us, it, it shares with us. And I'm just going to 
ask, if you're going through a situation today where you feel like you're abandoned by God this morning, then I pray that, that this message has spoken to you. If you've struggled to find God in moments of suffering, I pray this morning that you've had a fresh revelation of who He is. He isn't distant. He isn't foreign. He is present in everything, in our joy and in our suffering. It says in Romans, we're going to weep with those who weep. Joy with those who have joy. This is, this is God. This is, I'm going to talk a little bit about empathy next week and it being used as a tool. But this is greater than empathy. This is, this is not weeping because you're weeping. This is weeping because the, this is Jesus weeping with you because he feels the suffering. He experiences the suffering. He's in it with you. everyone could just bow their heads and close their eyes. If this morning you've come into the church for the first time, and, or maybe you've been in church before, but you've never really signed up to this thing, Christianity, and this is the first time that you've heard about a God crucified, a God who enters our suffering, a God who died, not abandoned by God, but God suffering within him. I'd love to extend an invitation to you this morning. If you're going through suffering right now, there's no greater gift than Jesus and the comfort that he can provide through those times. That his suffering wasn't just for comfort, but it was to save us, to enter relationship with God, to meet God face to face. So I'd like you to do something really brave. If, you, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, but you would like to, you don't want to suffer alone anymore. You don't want to feel abandoned anymore. You want to feel close to God. If you've never had a relationship with Jesus, I'd ask if you just do something really brave. And if you just slip up your hand, because I would love to pray for you. Is there anyone here? Thank you, Jesus. I'd also like to invite people who, if you need a fresh revelation of God, if you've been in church a long time and you need a fresh revelation of God, you need a, you feel abandoned by God. If you're going through suffering right now and you feel abandoned by God, that God is distant, that is a lie from the devil. It's a lie from Satan. It is cutting off communication because what what the enemy wants to do is that when we're in our most broken state in our most suffering state the enemy wants to sever communication with god because god provides healing jesus provides healing so he tells you a lie that god isn't there that you feel abandoned by god i i would love to pray for you this morning if that's you when we come out when we come to the table for communion if you would just remain at the front i'd love to pray for people that are going through suffering feeling god abandoned i'd love to pray that god will reveal himself to you in his suffering he's not the cause of our suffering but he stands and suffers with us you're not alone this morning if you're going through suffering
not of the church, but of the Lord. It is made ready to those who love God and for those who want to love God more. So come, you who have much faith and you who have a little, you who have been here often and you who have come for the first time, you who have tried to follow Jesus and you who have failed in following Jesus, you who have decided to follow Jesus for the first time, Come, let nothing keep you from love's feast. Let nothing empty this table of its power. Leave judgment behind and receive mercy. Leave indifference behind and recognize God's family. Leave now if necessary and be a forgiver, then run back. Because it is the Lord who invites you. It is God's will that you, uh, that those who desire Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit should encounter him here. That Christ's death on the cross, the crucified God, reveals God in his most powerful, most present way that it could ever reveal.